Well, welcome back to the Building Peace Initiative at youwantapeaceofmeonline.com. This is John Van Bladel, and today's podcast is Extending Compassion to the Earth. Now, this was inspired by Earth Day, which was actually April 22nd. Um, so, as usual, I will be inviting the Bell of Mindfulness on occasion to slow me down a bit and to let whatever I said perhaps sink in a little bit. So when I invite the bell, just take three breaths in and out and the normal breathing rate so you don't hyperventilate. Because remember, we're not in a rush to go anywhere. So Earth Day is a day to pay our respect and to show gratitude for our life support system. Uh, Without her... We would not be able to survive, her being the Earth. In fact, we never would have come into existence. Yet, we don't seem to understand this. Uh, It's part of what some have termed species arrogance that far too many of us possess, and I'll put a little article on species arrogance on the uh, website. Now, without doubt, we've damaged our Mother Earth. Uh, We've exploited her for our own benefit without considering what her needs are. And even if we stop the abuse today, it's going to take a long time for her to recover. You know, the Earth is suffering, and we're suffering along with her. On some level, we're worried, and we have a vague sense that something is very wrong. And some people connect a lot of our mental health ills to the fact that they're paralleling how much the planet is suffering. That is called eco-psychology. Uh, Take a look at that sometimes, an interesting field which started some years ago, but which hasn't gotten that much momentum. However, I am teaching a course uh, in it, or I have been over the last several years. So, it's really sad that we don't understand the interdependent nature of our existence. Uh, Sad for us, sad for future generations, and not only for people, but of all the other organisms that inhabit the Earth, uh, from the great northern white rhinos that are now extinct in the wild, to every other organism, down to the smallest microbe on the planet. So, how has this happened? How have we become so disconnected from the natural world? Uh, We don't seem to understand that each breath we take is necessary for our survival. That without clean air, we suffer. In fact, without clean water, we can't survive more than a few days. Now, how many of us get up in the morning and thank the universe for potassium? Probably none of us, but without that seemingly insignificant element, we would die. Now you may ask, oh, why is he bringing up rhinos? Well, <clears throat> I have a little story about the rhinos. I remember seeing the majestic white rhino at a place called the Catskill Game Farm in upstate New York. Um, it was an amazing experience. I was about nine years old, and back then people didn't really understand the suffering that occurred in game farms or, in, in, or zoos when it comes to animals. But, you know, you'd go in, I still remember a big giraffe and a giant long tongue when we fed it one of the crackers. Um, (laughs) It got my whole, like, arm when it took the cracker. They might have had a tiger, too. Definitely a mountain lion. A lot of game animals running around there. Uh, But I remember the rhinos, you could see them in a distance. And to get to them, you had to go through these big steel gates and this big steel turnstile. And I said, I'm not going in there because they looked like they were right on the ground, that there was no barrier besides the gate that you would go through. 
So my parents convinced me to go through, and as we approached the rhino, uh, there was a moat, a giant moat. I remember seeing them there. Uh, now, right now, there's only two white rhinos left in the world, Najin, a 32-year-old northern white rhino, and her daughter, Fatu. And uh, they've been trying to uh, get them to produce more rhinos, but apparently the <clears throat> artificial insemination hasn't been working out. So rhinos, how did they become extinct? Well, uh, part of it is um, habitat destruction, but the other part is they're targeted by poachers who are fueled by the belief that their horns cure various ailments. Now, it'd be easy, easy to malign the poachers, uh, but first got to understand why they're poachers. Would that be their first choice as a profession? Probably not. Um, do they have other options to earn a living? Well, economics plays a part in this. Probably not. Or do they really believe they're pursuing a magical cure from the horns? Well, we got to understand this from a broader perspective, uh, without just uh, labeling them as you know horrible people, uh, and ask yourself, what would you do if you were in their situation, raised the way they were? That doesn't mean that we don't endeavor to use protective force to help the rhinos, but it's something to consider. And then the question becomes, what can we do to help them stop poaching? Now, it's too late for the white rhinos, but there's other species that can be saved, including some rhino species. Now, a similar situation exists with the poaching of elephants um, for ivory. Now, I'm also going to post um, Call Me By My True Names by Thich Nhat Hanh, because I think that that is one of those things that helps us judge less and understand more. And that certainly is a poem that um, I'll give you a little bit of a history of why he wrote it after some of his monks were uh, executed uh, to deal with some of his anger and grief. But I'll post that too. So let's take a little bit of a break here and just breathe a bit. So I remember the day when I read about the last male white rhino who was named Sudan dying in 2018. And you know, I, I felt like a part of me died with him. And I still become tearful thinking about it. Um, maybe it's empathy. Empathy for the last of its kind. Uh, with a grief that such a magnificent creature is gone forever. Um, maybe a part of me really did die with him. I am part of the biosphere. And the loss, the loss changed my world and our world in some way. And it did so because we are interconnected. What if, whenever a species goes out, driven not by uh, natural factors but by human activity, what if we do le lose a part of ourselves? Maybe it was shame that I or we didn't do enough to collectively stop such a crime against nature. Uh, that we could be so callous or indifference, that we barely reacted. Uh, it was like an insect that hit the windshield of our car while driving. We paused for a second and kept right on driving to our destination. But because I had developed a connection with the species, due to the trip I took at nine years old, the loss bothered me and it sticks with me. And I think that's the key to preserving our planet. Empathy. Developing a connection with the natural world and treating it as if our relationship with it is important, because it is. As I said earlier, our lives depend on it. We have to realize that we are interdependent, 
we don't exist in a vacuum. Now, I couldn't be doing this podcast without the people who run the host, assemble the laptop I'm using to record it, the salespeople, the chair I'm sitting in, the apartment that I'm sitting in that was constructed, um, the people who mine the materials needed to make the products that I just mentioned, and the water used to hydrate all of us so we can do the necessary work. I have a glass of water, so that's why I thought about it. As a matter of fact, without roads, the vehicles that travel them, truck drivers, and the thousands of people who contribute to getting the laptop here in, in so many ways, this podcast would not exist. Now let's take a little trip to the millions, trillions I mean, of cells that right now are working together so that my body functions and I can develop this podcast. Uh, the whole issue in itself of language is just fascinating. There's 6,900 of them. Um, we communicate in so many different ways, but we expect to have only 3,000 of them by the end of this century. Um, they're declining too, and I'll talk sometime about why nature wants more diversity. You'll get my famous dogwood tree story. So, we've all come to understand the many conditions that have to be present for each of us to come into existence. Uh, a good way to raise our awareness about this is to eat an orange mindfully. Now, I learned this at Blue Cliff Monastery, and I do this exercise with classes. So, I'll do a short introduction today, and I'll post the full exercise on the Building Peace Initiative website. So, let's begin. Let's say you have an orange. You can actually take, well, I'll take a while. Take a moment and go find an orange, and I'll just, we'll just breathe a little bit together. That's if you happen to have one in your refrigerator. If you have to go to the store to get one, it's going to be a, a longer trip. But hey, you can always pause the podcast. <laughs> so take the orange in your hand. I'm going to go through it very, very briefly. Uh, describe what the orange looks to you as you're holding it. Well, actually, just you can look at the orange on the desk or the tabletop and take a look at what it looks like to you. Now notice the bumps, the contours. Is it perfectly round? Is it oval? Now feel the weight of the orange in your hand and run your fingers across it and notice the texture. Feel the contact between the tips of your fingers and the orange. Now if you put your finger to your nose after putting some pressure on the orange there you may notice its smell. And how would you describe the smell? Does the smell bring up any thoughts or feelings for you? And now you can begin to slowly peel the orange. And listen to it closely, the sound of the peel separating from the orange itself. Now that you have peeled the orange, pay attention to the feel of the core. Notice the different textures, the feel of the different segments. Maybe you have some residue or juice on your fingers, and notice the feel of that. Now remove a segment from the orange. Notice its shape, feel, and smell. 
and you may now begin to eat the segment. Notice the first bite and chew it 20 times before you swallow it, or 10 to 20 times. And while you're doing this, feel the texture of the skin against your mouth, your jaw muscles moving. That's a really brief one. I mean, you, it usually extends this a lot longer. It's the longest, longest it's taken most people to eat an orange. Um, <laughs> would be maybe a couple of minutes, but in this case, you're spending a lot more time with it. Now, from here, you move on to, um, as you're slowly eating the orange, keep part of your awareness on the sensation of the orange and what the orange is a reflection of. Now, you know this object as an orange, but it's actually composed of non-orange parts. Now, what parts or conditions are required to form an orange, or actually for the orange to manifest? Now, I usually give people some time to come up with a list of this, you know, water, sugar, clouds, sun and rain, soil, nutrients, tree, seeds, pollination. And now here's the good part. Well, they're all been pretty good parts, actually, especially if your orange was tasty. But without any of these components, if you take, say, um, sunlight away and it can't photosynthesize, there'll be no orange. And we're much like oranges, but we think we have an independent existence. But without the sun, the water, or nutrients, or even bees, we would also be in a great deal of trouble. We might not survive. So as you're eating your orange with awareness, let us think about how the orange got here, starting from the point it ended to the point where it ended up in your hands. And then we talk about all the people who actually contributed to getting the orange to you. So let's take a little bit of a breath now. Because we end this with a bell, of course, and let people breathe. Now, this is a really good exercise to get people thinking about their connection with the world around them and to maybe begin to develop some humility, to remove ourselves from the position of species arrogance and understand just how deeply we need our biosphere to remain intact, to survive. We must address what's called speciesism, that we think we are superior and that things are just here for us to exploit at no cost. Now finally, I had predicted for years that uh, one of the things that was going to happen is we were going to have to be human pollinators, and I can't find the article. I came across it one day, uh, but there are actually places where they're getting humans to run around with sort of dusters in fields to pollinate because the number of pollinators has declined so much. So there's a good side to that, I guess, but you know, better cardiovascular tone for us. Uh, but the downside is uh, the bee extinction is really frightening. So what am I getting at today? The need to show compassion not only to each other, but for the whole of nature. By taking care of the planet, all the animals, plants, and natural resources, we are taking care of ourselves and each other. Now take some time to appreciate the world that you are part of that you are a part of and how your actions can contribute to preserving it. Now this can be overwhelming because there's a lot of uh, environmental degradation going on. But if we can keep our focus and work on one thing at a time, we can start to affect the change necessary so that we can not only survive but hopefully prosper. 
So I'm going to leave you um, with a little bit of inspiration for today from a guy named Desmond Tutu. Do your little bit of good where you're at. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. So that's it for today. And remember, with a collective effort, we can change our direction and preserve our planet and each other. Wishing you all some peace of mind.